Imagine, what would we do without electricity? We all know because we have power outages. <laughs> they turned the power out in Northern California. People just freaked out. Like, I was telling everybody, look, you get used to it. <laughs> get it? You might consider a generator. It's, it's a great calming down time. Remember a couple years ago when we had that huge uh, winter storm and power was out for, off and on for a couple of weeks? Oh man, we, we did we you know we did all the things we used to do. We read books, we played music together, we sat and talked to each other. It's fantastic. Okay. Um, all right. Three. We're we're going to do a three lecture series. Reality 101. The first one is overshoot. I'm going to talk, uh, and the reason it's called that is because I think this is one of the most important concepts that's not widely understood. And. The, the thing is, we all know that we have challenges facing us as a society. Uh, there have been uh, legions of alleged solutions proposed to our predicament. Various definitions of our predicament. I think some of our definitions of our predicament are um, erroneous in some cases, um, incomplete in almost all cases. And therefore, the solutions that have been proposed are often partially delusional uh, and certainly incomplete. Uh, so um, briefly, um, the, my background that is relevant to this is that in university, I was trained in math and physics. However, I left the field of engineering and math and physics and pursued a uh, career in journalism which meant I've spent my entire adult life researching issues and writing about them, but I've always had, I've had, for I am fortunate to have had a, a good, strong technical background so I can understand technical issues and, and, and have often, of course, used that in my writing and research. And I think it's one of the shortcomings of our educational system that people can graduate from university with, without having much of a, of, of a technical background. Um, scientific background um, and so that's something in society that I feel is worth uh, working on as, as a group as a community and talk to each other about the things we know because there's so much to know I mean some people know know how to fix tools some people know math some people know how to cook so thank you Folk University for making this possible so I'm going to talk a little bit about overshoot I think that um, and I will explain what that means. Um, I think that we all know uh, what's going on. Excuse me if I'm in the way. Um, we all know what's going on. Um, we are destroying the, our wild ecosystems in order to provide the services that we want. We want more power. We want more energy. This is the Canadian tar sands. So we're ripping up the boreal forest digging up the tar sands, uh, so we're destroying the boreal forest to get the energy we want. And then on top of that, the waste from that energy, the CO2 that goes into the atmosphere, is heating up the planet. I think we pretty much understand uh, that much. We understand that we're in a climate crisis. This is a former uh, lake in California, now reduced to a dribbling little stream. Um, but the one thing about this, the climate crisis that we face is that, we're, that the climate crisis is a symptom. It's a symptom of a much deeper dysfunction in our culture. And there is certainly nothing wrong with talking about the climate crisis, but it's an incomplete story. And it also slightly distracts us from what I believe are, are the deeper dysfunctions and issues that we have to deal with. Um, what I'm going to talk about is, in some ways, it's disturbing. These are, these are harsh realities, and, and sometimes they make us sad about the fact that you know, our, our world is facing these problems. I think of it like this, however. This time of year, and we're enjoying this beautiful fall day, the leaves are starting to fall, the beautiful colors. It's not pessimism to point out, however, that winter's coming. 
And it's not pessimistic to start taking note of that, and we all are putting in our firewood and sealing up our homes and, and canning salmon and getting prepared. So think of what I'm telling you as kind of saying winter's coming. And yes, it it's, can be disturbing news, I mean, if you, if, you've, if you had lost your memory last spring and you lived through the beautiful spring and summer and then suddenly it started getting cold, you'd be upset. But once you realize this is a cycle, you, you, you'll get used to it. So our problem is deeper than, than, than climate. Uh, and climate is a symptom. And we're going to talk about what is, a, what is it a symptom of? What's this deeper dysfunction? Um, Another symptom is the biodiversity collapse. You know, we're losing thousands of species uh, every year, perhaps every day. It's really hard to, to track it, but we're definitely losing hundreds of species daily. Uh, the, the species die-off rate right now is about a thousand times the, the normal background die-off rate of species. Species go extinct. That's natural. But going extinct at the rate they're going right now is not usual, it's not normal. And we are the reason. Human growth of human enterprise is the reason that thousands of species are going extinct. Here's, here's what we've done. Uh, 10,000 years ago, uh, when our ancestors were um, roaming around the planet in small bands and beginning to learn how to grow, grow food, um, the Earth had a certain carrying capacity. Uh, and the carrying capacity is how much biomass in terms of humans, elephants, wolves, plants, trees, how much biomass can the world support? And there's a limit. Uh, and the carrying capacity Everything that lives grows up to the carrying capacity of its habitat. Everything wants to grow and expand. There's nothing wrong with growing and expanding. Everything wants to grow and expand. Every, you, you've seen it in your gardens. Everything grows into each other. It's, it's not like the raspberries come up against the apple tree and go, oh, excuse me, you know. No, the, 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 the blackberries just keep going. Everything does that, just like us. Humans just keep going. We, we've expanded now around the planet. Now what we've done is we, as we've expanded is we've grown up past the carrying capacity. The blue is our domesticated animals and the red is us in biomass. And the green is the wild biomass. So you can see since 1900, humans and our livestock have essentially displaced wild biomass. Humans and their livestock now comprise 96% of the mammal biomass on Earth. Stunning. The other 4% is everything else. The whales, the wolves, the elephants, the rats, the shrews, all the other mammals, 4%. Humans and our livestock, 96%. This is another symptom of the fundamental dysfunctions we're facing. Now, a quick word on extinctions. This is the five billion year history of Earth. Um, Earth started as a molten, steaming, hot mass. Uh, over the course of about three and a half billion years, it cooled off to an ice world. This is the temperature. Earth started off extremely hot, got cooler and cooler, and then sort of leveled off, and here we are today. Now, during that time, life started about here, and life started as anaerobic bacteria. Anaerobic meaning it, does, it, uh, it survived in, um, in an environment without oxygen. So early life didn't need oxygen, and in fact, didn't like oxygen. Oxygen was poison to early life forms. These dips here are the extinctions. You've heard that we're entering the sixth extinction, there's the last one, the dinosaurs, two, three, four, five. But when they say sixth extinction, they're ignoring three earlier extinctions. 
we're actually entering the ninth major extinction. But the first one is interesting because the first extinction was a result of these um, uh, bacteria learning to take energy from the sun through photosynthesis. And when they did that, they produced oxygen that went into the atmosphere but and into the water, into the oceans. But oxygen was a poison for them. The same way that CO2, that we're putting CO2 into the atmosphere. It's very similar chemical process. And we're doing that to get more energy. They did this to get more energy. And it cost them dearly because there was a massive die-off. Um, because these were anaerobic bacteria. Oxygen was a poison. So the first big extinction was very similar to us in carbon dioxide. It was oxygen in the atmosphere. Anyway, I wanted to show you this chart because it, it shows you that the life forms will get more and more diverse. This line is a measure of diversity. It's the family diversity. Family meaning the biological families. And we can see that life's getting more and more complex, but then it crashes, more and more complex and crashes. So when life was still in the oceans, there's this, this line right here represents that capacity I was talking about, carrying capacity. The oceans could only support so much life. Once life moved on to land, we could, the planet could support more life. However, at this point, an asteroid hit the Earth. This, by the way, was the largest collapse, uh, extinction of all time. Uh, I believe 95% of all species went extinct at this time. Uh, because of this cooling that was happening here is, is one reason, and there may have been other, other reasons there, uh, such as uh, volcanic action and so forth. But this was a very quick cooling, so the, the species that, that were used to a certain temperature died out. Does that make sense? Then the planet warmed up, it got very hot, hotter than we could stand right now. This, is, this would be like uh, 12 to 14 degrees hotter than we are now. And we're now concerned about being two, two degrees hotter, and we should be. Uh, humans would have a very hard time living our lifestyle uh, during the time of the dinosaurs. But an asteroid hit the Earth and 65 million years ago, and it wiped out a large portion of the species. Uh, I can't remember. Anybody remember this percentage? 65% of the families or something of the species disappeared, and the dinosaurs disappeared at that time um, due to an asteroid. Now, a similar thing is happening right now. We have a massive species loss. We're putting a gas into the atmosphere in which we cannot long endure without reducing it, as, as the bacteria did three and a half billion years ago. Uh, massive species loss, only now we are the asteroid. We are hitting the Earth, we're having the similar effect that the asteroid had 65 million years ago. Now I have this picture here uh, because I actually believe that militarism is one of our number one problems. It consumes the most resources, consumes the most fuel, and it consumes all these resources and fuel not to make anything useful, but to destroy things and blow things up. Um, so one of the issues, and keep this in mind when we talk later uh, in the next, next week about uh, solutions, one of, the, one of the solutions is gonna be how do we deal with, with militarism? Uh, the other issue that we have to deal with is just sheer population growth. A lot of people don't like to talk about population growth. It's even kind of taboo uh, because talking about population growth has religious connotations. People didn't like it when China had the one child per family rule, uh, although the UN estimates China saved, there, there are half a billion less people in China because of that, that law. Now, it didn't work out well and had social impacts. And, uh, serious and violent social impacts. Um, but the fact is, there'd be 500 million, 500 million more people in China without, had they not had that policy. 
People don't like to talk about population. And, and the other reason is some people think that, well, that's just blaming the poor. It's actually the rich consumption that's causing all our problems. But that's not exactly true. This isn't, this isn't a scene of rich people. But sheer numbers of humans are, in fact, an issue. And if we don't address it, if we hide from it, if we refuse to talk about it, then our solutions are going to be incomplete, which they are. This is something we need to talk about. That's the main thing I want to say about populations. It's something that we have to allow to enter into the human discourse. Now, there are some positive ways we can address population. Number one is universal women's rights. And I'll talk about this in more detail later. But universal women's rights, if women all over the world had, had the right to decide how many children they have, population would go down. And if we had universal available contraception, the population would go down. So there are ways we can do this without draconian measures. But the big one, of course, is consumption. All the stuff we use and throw away. And even electric cars. I mean, we're in like the third and fourth generation of electric cars. I have friends who are on their third electric car already. Electric cars, electric cars haven't been around for more than a decade or so. But, you know, so what happened to those other two electric cars? Where are they? They're, they're in a junk pile like this. Or somebody's driving them. But eventually they'll be in a junk pile like this. So just because we have an electric car doesn't mean we're not over-consuming resources. Um, technological resources. Um, this is a village in China, and this village's entire economy is recycling tech waste from Europe and North America. That's this kid's job. I told you this is a dark story. Um, it's just a difficult story. But the reason for talking about it is that we want our analysis to be realistic so that our solutions can be realistic. There are solutions. And, we, and we, we're aiming at the real solutions, the genuine solutions, and, tr and trying to, to clear our heads from some of the delusional ideas we have. These are just consumption curves. It doesn't particularly matter. There's McDonald's restaurants over here, and urban population, and communications, and telephones, and dammed rivers. This goes back to 17, from between 1750 and now. You can see that our consumption of everything is increasing. But I want you to pay particular attention to this one in the middle, paper. Remember when computers were going to save paper? <laughs> remember that story? Now, I remember myself and a few other people going, be careful. I'll bet you that doesn't happen. It's never happened. We use six times more paper today than we did in the 1990s at the dawn of the sort of modern personal computer era. So what happens? Why didn't computers save paper? Computers just sped up our economy, sped up everything. Now you can order stuff online, you get a package from Amazon and it's in cardboard and wrapped up and you get it little package like this and it's in a package like this of cardboard and paper. There's a million more ways to use paper. The economy sped up. We use six times more paper than we did at the dawn of the, of the computer era. Computers didn't save paper. And on top of that, everything else that we use. Um, I like this note, not shopping list. Now, a lot of us, those of us on Cortez Island, we all compared to the Canadian average, we live fairly modest lifestyles. And we do recycle, and we do make our own stuff, and we do repair our tools. We do a lot of this. We borrow stuff, we share tools. Uh, we ask other people, our neighbors for help. Uh, we scavenge and we collect bits and pieces and fix things. So most people on Cortez Island are doing most of this stuff on the, on the not shopping list. Build community, swap and barter. We have a free store. So we're doing a lot of things right in our community. But I just 
I was just out around the rest of the world, and believe me, they're not doing that. It's buy, buy, buy. Buy something new. Got to have the new iPhone. Oh, my God, you still got an iPhone 6? Oh, my God. Uh, I've got an iPhone 9. You know, this is, the men this is the mentality out there. And then when the new thing comes out, there's this massive pressure to have the new thing. And on top of that, you have these tech companies actually making our old phones and our old computers obsolete so that we have to buy or believe we have to buy a new one. So this massive consumption uh, is also a root of our problem. Now here's an interesting little graph. The UN published this, and down on the bottom we see ecological footprint per capita. Now the ecological footprint uh, is global hectares per capita. The average is two. If we used if we use, and I'll explain a little bit about ecological footprint. If we take all the resources that we use in Canada, or Cortez Island, or Vancouver, or wherever you, you choose, if you take all the resources, then you calculate how much land area and water and resources are required, and they do this in hectares. How big is your actual footprint? And it turns out that two hectares per person would be a fair average footprint. If we were all only using two hectares of stuff, then human enterprise would be, would be sustainable. However, in Canada and the US and Australia, Norway and countries like that, we're using seven or eight times, or we're using seven or eight hectares, so that would be four times uh, our um, fair share. Many countries are using less than their fair share. Sierra Leone, they use less than their fair share. Many African countries and so forth. Now what the, what, and then on the, on this scale is the human development index. And these are the, these are the things that the UN is hoping that all cultures can achieve, which is uh, low, uh, or high survival rate, you know, birth survival rates, uh, medical care for everyone, decent housing, food, and so forth for everyone. So th this is the Human Development Index is a measure of how well societies are doing at achieving these goals. Well, of course, we're achieving those goals because we're spending four times our fair share of, of stuff. Um, many countries are not achieving those goals because they're they're consuming half their fair share of stuff. The UN would like to see everybody up here in this corner here using only their fair share and meeting all the goals. There's one country that makes it into, now a lot of these countries are pretty close. There's one country that makes it into the magic box. Does anybody have a guess? Raise your hand if you think you might know a country that might be it. John? Denmark. No. Iceland. What's that? Iceland? No. Sweden. India. India? No. <laughs> Any other guesses? Closer. Cuba. <laughs> What's that? Post-embargo? Post-embargo being Well, yeah, the embargoes by both the U.S. and by Russia is why they achieved that. Yes, right. And they had, they were forced to reduce consumption. They were forced to create something like a decent lifestyle for their people with minimum consumption. But, you know, a bass player can still afford a decent hat. <laughs> and they have a decent life in Cuba but it's a modest life. And I think the, the community that we have on Cortez Island is trying to go in that direction and achieve a decent life without overconsuming. That's the lifestyle we're aiming at. Do you mean the community on Cortez of the people who live here more or less year-round? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because we also rely, some of us rely for our income uh, on the tourist industry, 
Um, <laughs> and then that adds to our footprint. And then there's the two seniors who are only one month a year and have big mansions. There, indeed, there are. So we're probably not quite there, but Cuba got there. But Cuba got there because they were forced by the embargoes from the U.S. and then later from Russia to figure out how to live modestly. Exactly, they do. They're, if you go there, it's like uh, like a 1950s movie. Like they're all driving around in these 1950s Buicks and stuff, which they can maintain and repair because they're maintainable and repairable, and they can actually fabricate parts for them and so forth. These modern cars we have, I mean, they're not repairable. They are, but by an expert, you have to send. You know, I have to take them back to the shop and so forth. Um, so. What is this fundamental, deeper dysfunction that I'm referring to? The answer is overshoot. Humans have overshot that carrying capacity of the earth. There's too many of us consuming too much stuff, and almost everybody wants more. I mean, some of us may think, we don't need more. We're happy to live a modest lifestyle. But... Take your seven and a half billion people. Most people on this planet want more stuff. More power, more wealth, bigger house, better food, strawberries from Nicaragua in the wintertime, stuff like that. Overshoot, I, I, I put this picture up because this is a, this is a algae bloom in a lake. <clears throat> That's a local issue that we have. When algae overshoots the capacity of a lake, it doesn't, it's not doing that because it's evil. It doesn't really know what it's doing. It's just evolution has taught it to grow and expand, and it'll do that until it's consumed all the available resources in the lake, and it's long since, this is an example of overshoot. The algae will overshoot the lake. Wolves will overshoot a watershed, and then some of the wolves will die back. It's normal. We didn't overshoot the earth because we're evil. We overshot the earth because we're animals and we're taught, nature, evolution taught us to expand, aggressively consume, and never taught us to stop. There's nothing in the evolution of algae or wolves or humans that say at a certain point, stop doing all these things that we've taught you how to do, we being evolution. So algae will keep growing until they overshoot the lake. Then they will all die off or not all die off, they'll die back to the carrying capacity. So our lake right now, Hag Lake or, or Gunflint, it has algae and diatoms and so forth in it all year long, all the time. And it can maintain a certain level. That's the capacity of the lake. But when the algae overshoots the lake, because we put all our nutrients into the lake, it overshoots the lake and then it all dies off. Now here's a little story about overshoot. In 1944, the U.S. Army, that was, the U.S. Army was still fighting the war in 1944, and they had an outpost on St. Matthew Island in the Bering Sea, and they took a small herd of reindeer to the island in order to feed their soldiers. The war ended. They didn't need the island. They abandoned the island. They left the reindeer. When they left, they left 29 reindeer. Well, the reindeer had no predators on the island. There was lots of lichen and a little bit of grass and scrub to eat. And so the reindeer would just party on. No humans, no cougars, <coughs> no wolves, no nothing. So the reindeer grew and grew and grew. But as they grew, what did they do? They reduced the capacity of the island because they ate the grass, they ate the lichen, they started eating it all up. And they ate it up faster than it could grow. So they actually reduced the capacity while they were growing their numbers. Uh, the biologists who visited this island later estimated that the island might have been able to support 2,000 or 2,500 reindeer. That was its capacity. But the reindeer grew past that and reduced the capacity and they grew to 6,000 reindeer about three times the capacity of the island. So you can way overshoot before you collapse. And then in one winter, in one winter, the reindeer collapsed from 6,000 down to 42. 
because they'd eaten everything. That is overshooting. Now, can, can humans overshoot an island? Well, yeah, here's an example. Uh, human population on Easter Island, the capacity on the island, interestingly enough, is about the same. The, uh, um, Biologists figured that the island could have supported about 2,000, maybe a little more, 2,500 people. But when the people started growing at an exponential rate, they actually reduced that capacity. They grew to about 7,000 people, which is interesting because it's very close to the reindeer number. Now it's, it's easy to overshoot by about three times. I don't know why that is, but that's kind of an interesting biological uh, pattern. And then they crashed. The population crashed. And so, um, this is a picture of our current overshoot. Now, th these are all different graphs of different things. Water, paper, soil. This is our consumption since 1750. Now, our consumption, if you take, you know how people tell you you can't add apples and oranges? Well, let me tell you something. You can't. You just have to give them a different name. Call them fruit, for example. Um, you can add apples and oranges. So here we are adding the consumption of fisheries, copper, cement, coal, oil, liquid, soil, phosphorus, everything. And we're having a, a, an aggregate number or an aggregate consumption, which is what the UN uses for their footprint analysis. And this... This amount of consumption has been growing at about 3.5% per year. Now, who knows how to figure out the doubling time if you know the percentage? Exponential. It is exponential, but if you know the percentage growth rate, what's the doubling time? Nathaniel's thinking about it. <laughs> you divide the percentage into a number. What's that number? 70. It's actually 69.3, which, which uh, has to do with the um, what's called the natural growth rate. But anyway, call it 70 if you divide the number into 70. So if you have a 3.5% growth rate, divide that into 70, that's 20. Every 20 years since, 19, or since 1750, every 20 years, humans double their consumption. But if you have an exponential growth rate, you can keep doubling your consumption, but you can only keep doubling your consumption for so long. The process of doubling, you know how that works, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 556, 1,012, it starts, it gets big fast. But technology changes that. Technology changes it? Technology can extend that for a long time, and it has been. We've had technology since, excuse me, we've had technology for, since the first stone tools, and whenever humans got technology, they could gather more stuff. But technology also allows us to increase our consumption. And so we, yes, we, you know, as we, we haven't run out of copper, but copper is getting harder and harder to get and more expensive, so we have, now we have plastic pipes, but now we also have an ocean full of plastic little bits because we have plastic everything. And so there's a, yes, technology can, can extend it, but technology also has its backside, which is waste and more consumption. So if you look at our 20-year doubling time, here's another little mathematical thing you should know. Um, first of all, as we've grown, just like the reindeer on St. Matthew's Island, just like the people on Easter Island, this is the whole human population, We've been reducing Earth's carrying capacity. And this was in 2010, Bill Reese, some of you may know Bill Reese, he's at the University of British Columbia, he's one of the world-renowned uh, ecologists, social ecologists, and he's actually the founder of, of the International uh, Global Footprint Analysis, the developer, and he estimated in 2010 that we were 50% past our capacity. And he estimates now, 10 years later, nine years later, 
that we're closer to 75 to 100% past the capacity of the Earth to maintain what we're doing. Um, now here's another important thing to understand about doubling times. In, these are 20-year markers here. So every 20 years, we double our consumption. The amount consumed in that 20-year period is greater than all the consumption from the beginning. Do you understand that? Mm -hmm. That's something that we really need to understand. We can, if we keep growing like this, we're going to keep, we're going to keep using as much stuff every 20 years as we've used forever, going back to the Paleolithic. And I don't think I have to tell you that's not possible. So we have this question: the capacity's going down. We're growing our consumption at three and a half percent. What if we reduced our consumption? What if we made some marginal changes and reduced our consumption growth down to 1% growth? Still be too much. Well, if it was 1% growth, how long would it take to double? 70 years. So in 70 years, that's how much stuff. You can just visually see this. You don't have to do the math. You can see. This is the amount of stuff we've consumed since forever. This is the amount of stuff we would have to consume in the next 70 years to continue growing even at 1%. What is this? this tells us a very important thing about this fundamental dysfunction I'm talking about. And that is we can't keep growing. And this is part of the genuine solutions. This is kind of what I'm trying to get at here is this isn't the end of the world that we can't keep growing. Most of us on Cortez, we've kind of learned to live a modest lifestyle. Most of us don't keep wanting more and more and more stuff. We just like to have a decent life. But we don't need more and more and more. But most of the world thinks that not only do we want and need more and more stuff, but that we can have more and more stuff forever. And what we've just learned about exponential growth is that we cannot. So we have to take the idea of eternal economic growth and we have to get rid of it. Any solution to our current problem ends endless growth. That has to be one of the planks of our genuine solutions. So you can put that in the memory bank. We cannot grow forever. We cannot grow our economies forever. Every country in the world wants a growing economy used to be 3 or 4%. They wanted their economies to grow every year. Now they're waking up to the reality, and they're, they're, they're hoping that they can have 2% growth. But at 2% growth, we double in 35 years. So this is one thing that we're missing. The environmental groups are missing it. The governments are missing it, because who wants to stand up in front of the population and say, I promise you less? The public is missing it. We're not talking about growth. We're not talking about the growth of population. We're not talking about the growth of, of consumption. And we better start talking about it. And it's not such a bad thing. We can all have happy lives with less stuff. We all know that. We were just talking earlier about when the power went out a few years ago for several weeks, and we were all sitting around and reading books and playing music and talking to each other again. And our lives weren't worse. And I found in some ways our lives were richer and happier. Our family was happier together. We were talking and we just, we actually learned a lot in that time because we, we opened up the big maps of history and we were reading about historical stuff and we were talking about the books we were reading. We were playing music together, cooking on the wood stove. I mean, we can have rich lives without more stuff. So I don't particularly see it as a problem. If we keep trying to have more stuff, this is the direction we're going. You all know where this is? Tar sands. We've used, we've, we've already consumed all the, all the cheap, easy, high net energy oil. It's gone. My father was in the oil business. I heard about this as a teenager. He told me <coughs> when they start digging into the shale oil and the tar sands, he told me this in the 1960s when I was in high school. When they start, and, and his job was finding places to drill oil wells. He was, he was a 
petroleum engineer. And he told me all about the, how much oil there was and, and that it was limited. And, um, um, and he also told me about global warming. They all knew, by the way, that carbon dioxide was going to heat the planet up. Uh, but one thing he said to me is he said, when they go after the shale oil and when they go into the tar sands, you'll know they're going after the dregs. That was his word, the dregs. To keep this whole story going, this is the growth of our energy use <coughs> since, since 1990. This is just since 1990. This is the last 30 years. We've been growing our energy use. It dipped down right here. Why did it dip down right here? Recession. Yeah, we were in a recession. That tells us the same story. Use less stuff, you can use less energy. To, to simplify, to contract our economy, this isn't, a this isn't a story of despair. We don't have to be depressed about this. It's just the real solution. And so when, when, um, when political circumstances forced Cuba to use less stuff, they used less stuff and they got into the magic box. When a global recession required us all to use less stuff, we used less stuff. And I don't remember anybody like saying, oh my God, my life just is terrible now. I suppose if you were a, a billionaire and, you, and or you, you had $10 billion and suddenly you only had eight, uh, you know, maybe. Oh, well, we're going from 1990 to 2016, and this is just the growth from the 1990 uh, level, and this is millions of tons of oil equivalent. Anyway, 1990 to now, that's 30-year period, we use, um, we use about, this is millions, and that's a thousand million, that's a billion. We use about four and a half billion tons more energy now in oil equivalent than we did 30 years ago. Four billion tons more oil than we did 30 years ago. Now, this graph shows you the annual change, this black line is the annual change in our energy use every year. We're using more and more every year, except when we had a global recession. We suddenly use less. Now this shows the growth of wind and solar and uh, uh, geothermal and other renewables. But what you can see here, and we have had what people have described as a renaissance and a bonanza of growth in renewable energy, solar and wind. But here's what we realize if we, when we look at the actual numbers. Solar and wind is taking up part of the slack from our annual growth, but here it's only taking up about 34%. The other 66% is taken up by fossil fuels. So our growth in renewable energy is not even keeping pace with our growth in energy demand. So these, the wind and solar development is not replacing fossil fuels. It's just adding energy to the system. This is very important for us to understand. It really helps us get a handle on what our real problems are and what the real solutions will be. Um, this is just another way of, of, of looking at that. The, this shows you the growth of fossil fuels every year. There's our recession year. And this green is the growth of renewable energy systems. So the growth of fossil fuels is actually continuing to outstrip the growth of renewables. So it's certainly a good idea to build renewable energy systems, but we shouldn't be deluding ourselves into thinking that we're so far that we're actually solving the fundamental problem, because we're not. We're adding energy, which allows us to add population. We're adding 90 million new people to the planet every year. And we're kind of facing And we're doing all that to have this. We're doing all of that, burning all that energy so we can have this lifestyle. 
or so that some people can have this lifestyle. And we all know that we need to be aiming at something more like this. Gardens, smaller homes, communities, simple living. Contracting our economy is not growing our economy. That's the fundamental solutions. That, that's fundamental to all the solutions that we need to be looking at. Where is that taken? Uh, that's taken in Eastern Europe somewhere, but I'm not exactly sure where. Mm -hmm. Sorry to say. But it's, I mean, even that, that's not what you'd call a wild ecosystem. That's a human-dominated ecosystem, but nevertheless, uh, it's not that. What's that? Where is that? That's China. Yes, sir. We, we have the we have the Mica Dam on the Columbia River and the Keith Dam on the Peace River, and you can also you can turn those Keith tubes and add another another Mica tube. You can then switch to electric cars. We have trolley buses in Vancouver. We could cut down on the on the use of, of fossil fuels. We could. So so we have all this future in front of us. We just have to do it. Yeah, we have to do that. And but damming rivers has has blowback too, has ecological blowback and cultural blowback. A lot of those rivers that we're damming, people live in those valleys and animals live in those valleys. Not, I'm not against dams, but I'm saying it's not free energy. Somebody's gonna pay for that. We, we, when we take over a valley, we kick out people and we kick out other species. And we use a lot of methane in general. And use a lot of methane. And cement is one of the, cement is one of the highest uh, uh, users of Fossil fuels. The 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 is a earth scale dam. The micro dams. The dam is a earth scale dam. Okay. Well, it, yeah. I'm not saying there aren't any solutions to mitigate growth. There are. You're right about that. You're absolutely right. There are some solutions. But what I'm saying is that every solution that we propose has to also include contracting our economy, not continuing to grow. And, like I said. We build the dam in a valley, we flood out these guys. We flood somebody out. Whenever we take over a section of the earth uh, for our own purposes, we flood out our other relatives. And so the world that I want to see, and I assume most of you will agree because you live here in this beautiful place, we want to see a world where, where all these creatures can live as well and every other creature. Um, the, some of you may know, anybody know this guy? Yeah, Merv. Merv, does anybody know Merv Wilkinson? Yeah, he passed away about a decade ago. Early in the, uh, well I'd say in the early 90s, Merv came to Cortez because we were at that time just thinking about having a community forest Merv had a plot of land down around Chimenez. I think it was like 52 acres or something. 75 total. 75 acres? Yeah, something like that. It wasn't just his, it was some of the land. Yeah. So he was logging this 75 acres around Chimenez. He logged it his entire life. This is an important piece of the story here. He logged this land his entire life. He made a living, modest living, his entire life. And he had more standing timber on the land when he left than he did when he started. Now that is where we have to be going. Merv Wilkinson is one of my major heroes because here's a person who did it. He had a piece of land that he could manage he kept the deer, he kept the wolves, he kept the cougars, they all lived there, the birds, habitat for everybody. He made a living and he had more standing timber the day he passed away than he did when he started. There's your solution. And so we were rocking around Cortez with Merv in the 90s. David Shipway and myself and some others, and we're walking around with Merv. And he's telling us, oh yeah, you see where all those, those four fir trees are all growing close together, you can take out two of those and you'll still get all the growth that you get with four, you can get with two trees and the two you take out you can use. And then he'd show us you could take out that tree, take out that tree and you'll still get all the growth. Uh, and he was sort of showing us how he selected which trees to take out. 
And then at one point he sort of turned to us and he said, you know, this is really simple. And we're going, yeah. <laughs> he says, all you have to do is cut below your growth rate. Now, any forester knows what the growth rate of a, of a stand of trees is. A certain number of cubic meters or board feet per, per year, per hectare. That's a known quantity. All you have to do to, have, to do what he did is to have more when, you, when you're done than you did when you started, is to cut below your growth rate. So if your growth rate is three cubic meters per hectare per year, you cut it two and a half. It's not rocket science, is it? This is third grade math. Just cut below the growth rate. And that is, that's a proverb for our entire lives for, for regarding the fish, the forests, everything we consume on the earth. Everything wants to grow. Remember we talked about the fact that everything overgrows its habitat and the blackberries grow into the apple trees? Everything's trying to grow and everything overgrows. We can live off the overgrowth. But when we are reckless, when we want more, when we want everything, we start consuming and harvesting the capital, the ecological capital. And what Merv did and showed to all of us is that if you never touch your capital, if you never touch your principle, if you just let it grow and you just take the overgrowth, you can do that forever. Here's our beautiful place. I don't know if any of you saw, there was somebody, there, were, there was some gang down in, in, uh, in the lagoon this summer with a big truck and they were out just screaming the clams. And I know that they got, somebody called on them and I think the fisheries came over, I'm not sure, but I saw them down there, I thought, who the heck, what are they doing? They were just creaming the clams in the, in the lagoon. And, but I, I know they got, someone called the, the uh, fisheries, and I know the fisheries came out. But anyway, the point is, if we follow Merv's policy, cut below the growth rate for clams, for forests, for fish, for everything, live modest lives, contract our economy rather than trying to grow, live with less rather than more, these are the directions that we have to go. So this heartbreaking story of what we're doing to the earth, there's a solution. I saw a sign, I saw a sign on the bus the other day in Vancouver on the SkyTrain. It said, it's 2050. Sea rise has increased. Would you rather, A, build dikes to fight it? Or, B, build submersible public transport technology to embrace it. <laughs> no, this is a real thing. This is, this is, yeah. Yeah, there's no C, change your lifestyle to avoid it. <laughs> so I'm proposing C, change our lifestyles to avoid it. So all of the, I'm just, I've done all of the solutions. I'm, so next week we're going to talk about some solutions in society. And I'm just going to give you a hint right now. Every solution that we're going to talk about has to do with contracting society, uh, stabilizing and even reducing human population growth, uh, ending this dream of endless economic growth, uh, and living simply not that hard, and having richer lives to show for it. So thank you very much, and we'll have questions.